Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Dischem Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson. Thank you once again for joining us. And uh, I think it's the first time that we've been interviewing outside the province. And it's, uh, it's great to have uh, Professor Brian Rayner here. He is a emeritus professor from the University of Cape Town, previous head of the renal unit at Grotesquia uh, Hospital, is now the senior research fellow and still um, part of the Department of Nephrology and Hypertension. Thank you for joining us today, Professor. Good. So, um, obviously, very interesting times we're living in, especially if you are a doctor or physician, and especially if you are dealing with uh, chronic uh, diseases. How have you found this time uh, for yourself being a physician? Have you been active um, in uh, research or setting guidelines, or uh, have you been working in the wards? What have you been up to over the past few months? Yeah, um, look, I'm, I was doing part-time work at the hypertension clinic at Fritisker. That clinic was closed because of the COVID epidemic, so we're just reissuing scripts for patients. We're not seeing them unless there's an emergency. Um, research activities already um, failed to a very significant degree. Um, in the private world, we've seen a dramatic reduction in people seeking care for hypertension and other chronic diseases like diabetes. Um, and this is a very significant issue and reflects some of the off-target effects of having is that hypertension and diabetes uh, are the biggest, one of the biggest risk factors uh, for severe COVID disease and death. I think this is rather surprising in South Africa. We all thought maybe people with HIV and TB may be at greatest risk, but they are at risk, but not to the same degree as people with hypertension and diabetes. And at the same token, these people are not being diagnosed and, and perhaps because they're not seeking follow-up for the fear of contracting COVID, that they uh, at risk of having uncontrolled hypertension, uncontrolled diabetes. Um, and this, this is a worrying issue. Can you please explain to us why um, people with hypertension and diabetes are at increased risk of contracting COVID? Well, I don't think they increased risk of contracting it, they increased risk of getting severe disease. Okay. And this is not absolutely certain. Um, we know that COVID now is not just a disease of the upper airways and, and the lungs. And it has a very dominant, it has a dominant vascular component uh, and clotting component. And we do know that hypertension affects the linings of your arteries and the same as in token as diabetes. And this may be the link, but it's not certain. At one point in time, there's quite a lot of confusion because um, there were some letters from in the in the BMJ and the Lancet are uh, people suggesting that. Uh, people taking certain drugs like called for hypertension called ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers were increased risk of contracting uh, the virus. And the reason for this is quite complex, but these drugs raise what's called ACE2, 
And ACE2 is the way the, the virus binds into your lungs and into cells and creates infection. And so they were advising people to stop the drugs. In fact, contrary to what you would have thought, these recent research and meta-analysis shows that these drugs are actually maybe well protected against severe COVID disease and death. So, so we're really trying to get people to carry on taking their medication, particularly these drugs, and not stopping these drugs because these drugs are the backbone of treatment of hypertension and related cardiovascular and kidney disorders um, that they may have. Hello? Hello. Can, can you hear me, Prof? Yes, I can. Um, can you explain to us with regards to diabetes, maybe why the outcomes are adverse? You've explained uh, with regards to yeah, diabetes. It seems that, that people with diabetes, um, the same token, it's a disease, larger disease of the vascular system. So the similar rationale may apply there. But in addition, that it appears that, that people with diabetes may develop severe insulin resistance and this may cause certain problems in managing the patients with COVID disease. So again, we need more research on this. It's not, not exactly certain why this is happening, but it's a definite fact. And so people with these diseases make, take extra precautions to avoid contracting COVID. Okay. Just while we're on that subject, I think a lot of people think of diabetes as a, a disease of sugar or as the pancreas, but they don't realize that it affects uh, multiple organs in the body. Can you maybe explain to our listeners how diabetes affects um, other other organs and the, the vascular system? Okay, so diabetes uh, gives you disease of what's called the Lars vessel. So people with diabetes are at greater risk for uh, uh, a heart attack, they're at greater risk for stroke, and they're at greater risk for developing what's called peripheral vascular disease, the circulation to the legs. So those are clear and very dominant. The other area is what we call the microvascular, which is the eyes and kidneys and nerves. And certainly diabetes is a major risk factor for the development of kidney disease. In fact, 50% of people in private practice entering what's called a dialysis program for end-stage kidney disease have diabetes. It also affects the small vessels of the eye, leading to what we call retinopathy. And if this is not treated and caught in time, uh, you you may go blind. It's one of the commonest causes of blindness in older age group. And then again, at the small vessels of the nerves, may you may start losing sensation in the feet, mm-hmm. and and this has consequences because you can't feel if say a stone lodges in your sh- shoes, and you may get an ulcer. And with the vascular components, that may lead to gangrene and amputation. So these are, you know, there must be a comprehensive strategy for treating people with diabetes. People need to have their kidneys checked by simple tests like examining the urine. And and every diabetic should go for uh, eye examination by optometrist or ophthalmologist to see if they're developing eye disease because that can be treated by laser therapy and prevent progressive blindness. Okay. Uh, what's the actual mechanism that the diabetes damages the lining of the blood vessels? Is it, if you can put it simply for our listeners, is it the high sugar that damages the lining? Or what causes the actual disease, um, the actual of the vessels? It's probably a, a whole constellation of factors. Um, about 80 to 90% of diabetics have hypertension and that damages the lining. 
They also have associated what we call dyslipidemia. They have very abnormal cholesterol and fats in their, in their bloods. Their good cholesterol is low. So that factor is, is, promotes damage to the vessels. And to the degree the glucose does damage directly damage the vessels. So it's a constellation of factors associated with diabetes that leads to this vascular damage. Okay, and you, and uh, as your title said, that you're part of the division of uh, nephrology and hypertension. What role does hypertension play in the kidneys, and why are they linked together like this? Okay, so hypertension, uh, the two biggest commonest causes of kidney failure are diabetes and hypertension. So hypertension also, through, through the pressure effects on the small blood vessels of the kidney, leads to aggressive scarring of the what we call the glomerula, that's the filtration unit of the kidney. And they slowly, with time, uh, develop progressive kidney uh, damage and progressive loss of function. If your blood pressure is extremely high, this uh, process can be extremely rapid and can develop over 6 to 12 months. So it's really important that everyone gets screened for hypertension because you know, 40% of the adult population have hypertension, 10% of people between 15 and 25. So every opportunity, if you go to your local pharmacy and you're collecting medication, try and have your blood pressure checked. If you go to your doctor, even if it's not for blood pressure, you're going for some other problem, ask your doctor to have your blood pressure checked. Because, you know, treating blood pressure saves lives. It is now becoming the dominant killer of people in South Africa and the sub-Saharan Africa, and the prevalence is increasing. It's going to outpace HIV AIDS uh, in the near future. And one of the problems we have, because it's all silent, you know, it's called the silent or stealth killer, that th- these things happen suddenly, like you wake up with a stroke, and that changes your life completely, or you have a heart attack or you have heart failure. So it's really important because 50% of people in South Africa don't know they have hypertension. So how are you going to treat yourself if you don't know it? Okay. Uh, Prof, Prof, can we take a short ad break quickly? And then I'd love to carry on talking about hypertension and uh, diagnosis and treatment straight after the break. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back, listeners. We are talking to Professor Brian Rayner, who, as we said before, is an emeritus professor in uh, nephrology and hypertension, the unit of nephrology and hypertension. And we're just talking about uh, everybody testing or getting screened for hypertension, no matter where you are, if you're going to have uh, something else checked, always get screened for hypertension. What is the reason, Prof, that people develop hypertension? Is it just something genetic or is it something natural as in the body as part of aging? Um, yeah, aging plays a role. Uh, it's probably a complex interaction between your genetics and your your lifestyle. There's no question that if you overweight, you have a sedentary lifestyle, um, you take excessive alcohol, you've got um, your, your diet, diet is poor, you don't exercise, those are all important contributory factors. But underlying this, there's a genetic component. So particularly if you have a family history of hypertension, you should be more concerned about having your blood pressure screened. Um, and certain ethnic groups, like in black South Africans, it's, it's more common and more severe. 
We don't know whether that's environmental or genetic. Um, and the consequences of hypertension are also more severe than uh, other population groups. So there are important differences there. Okay. And uh, so we start screening from, uh, you said, from the ages of uh, 15 or 20. You said, or you, what, what age did you say 10% of people have from? You said early 20s. From 15 to 25, the current prevalence in South Africa is 10%, both in boys and girls. So there's no, in South Africa, there's no sex predisposition. It affects uh, um, men and women equally. Uh, it's still very common in all ethnic groups in South Africa. Um, so, and even some people are advocating uh, screening for for children even earlier because we notice that if children have modestly elevated blood pressure in, in, in early childhood, they're on a trajectory to develop hypertension and the consequence of hypertension. So, um, and that may be an important time to intervene and get uh, your child um, to start uh, changing their lifestyle because we know um, obesity in children is increasing uh, quite dramatically due to a variety of issues, um, diet and lack of exercise and so on, that uh, that's important as well. Uh, the older you get, the, the prevalence is even higher. So if you're over 50 or 60, the prevalence is up to 60 to 70%. So it's almost the exception <laughs> not to have high blood pressure. And of course, you know, treating people dramatically changes prognosis. You, you save lives, you prevent death, you prevent stroke, you develop, prevent kidney disease, heart disease, you even prevent dementia. I mean, there's some evidence to link um, hypertension with the development of Alzheimer's dementia and vascular dementia. And, and that's one of, the, one of the biggest problems we're facing with our aging population. Okay, and uh, how, you mentioned earlier that um, obviously we have these uh, terrible consequences of hypertension, stroke, heart attacks, kidney disease, even vascular dementia. How does the hypertension or high blood pressure actually damage these blood vessels? Does it overstretch them? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the endothelium, you see, it's, part, you know, it's, it's complex because one of the processes of hypertension may be you, you develop what's called endothelial dysfunction and inflammation related to obesity and lifestyle and genetics. Other than direct pressure effect is really important. Um, and like the kidney likes to have a very highly regulated blood pressure. Otherwise, if that happens, you get damaged to the blood vessels directly from pressure. The eye is the same and the brain is the same. The, the heart itself, the heart muscle, when it has to contract against pressure, it has to enlarge. And over that time, that leads to progressive failure of your, your ventricle and leads to heart failure. So the understanding exactly and also associated lifestyle factors like many hypertensives have diabetes as well, they have cholesterol problems which also damage the blood vessels. Uh, and if they smoke, you, you have a kind of a double jeopardy or developing. Uh, so one of the biggest things that people with high blood pressure must do is stop smoking immediately. Okay, so how, um, yeah, so it seems like they all are bedfellows um, and hypertension and diabetes and high cholesterol and uh, the smoking. So how, what's the first line treatment for a patient who presents with uh, hypertension? I've heard that it differs between your ethnic group. Is that true? 
Okay, so when you see a hypertensive with elevated blood pressure, I think we're supposed to get, go back a step. We must establish uh, the diagnosis first definitively because some people going to the doctor's consulting room uh, get a sort of fight-or-flight response <laughs> and yes. their blood pressure kicks up into above the 140-90 sort of level. And this is a benign phenomenon and we must exclude that. So increasingly we're advocating that the fact that the patients must have either uh, purchase a home blood pressure monitor and monitor blood pressure at home in their usual environment to take a set of readings over a week and then see if they're truly hypertension. The other way is to do what's called a, a 24-hour blood pressure monitor. In fact, Dischem, your, your sponsor, actually has it at their stores. They offer the service. Um, to patients, and that is the most highly accurate way of diagnosing hypertension. In fact, in the United Kingdom, they say it's absolutely essential you have this test because they believe that you treat the people that need to be treated and not the people who don't need to be treated. So if you have what's called the white coater, don't need to be treated, but you need to be watched over time. So once your diagnosis is established, it depends on how severe it is. But everyone must undergo lifestyle changes. Um, all those things is stop smoking, moderating alcohol, exercising, eating more fruit and vegetables, and reducing saturated fats. And so those things. But most, the vast majority of people will require drug treatment. And yes, that does depend on ethnicity. Um, so in, in people of African descent, we would be using more what's called calcium channel blockers and diuretics, whereas in the uh, white population, we tend to be using with ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers as your first-line therapy. But in fact, the vast majority of people require two medications, and we're advocating people that actually have these two medications in a single pill, and so that was complementary action. And this has been shown to improve adherence. Because one of the biggest problems with high blood pressure is about 30% of people at three months are not taking the treatment, and another 10% are taking their treatment erratically, like they have drug holidays over weekends, or if they go on holiday for two weeks, they forget to take their medication. So adherence is critically important. Um, this is a lifelong disease. It, it does not go away, and, um, and that, that is essential. And a lot of people need to need take up to three drugs, four drugs, to control their blood pressure, depending on the severity. If your blood pressure is one, six, over 160, uh, over 90, then it's important to even start two drugs in the beginning to get prompted blood pressure control. So uh, drug treatment is really critical, in addition to lifestyle. The vast majority of people, uh, their lifestyle maybe lasts for three to six months, but usually they track back the old ways and so we need to have and this undoubtedly is cost saving to the economy because you see so many people dying prematurely of cardiovascular disease and stroke uh, that shouldn't be happening um, if we there is a, um, a web uh, sort of web uh, website called because we say so on Facebook and Twitter where we're saying to people have your blood pressure checked because we say so. You know, that's uh, that's really important. And and one of the things of trying to get this message across to the public 
is that people don't link high blood pressure to the outcome. So if you're having a heart attack, you're rushed off to hospital and rightly see a cardiologist and they're doing stents and fantastic things to save your life, but people are not appreciating that hypertension is playing a major role in that development. The same thing as a stroke. Um, we need to prevent more people having these sort of catastrophic events. Um, amazing. Um, very interesting. I think a lot of people kind of underplay it because a lot of people, you know, touch a common thing. People say, oh, I've got a bit of high blood pressure. I've got high blood pressure. Um, you know, it's often underplayed. And if uh, managed incorrectly, we can see the consequences as, as you've laid out. Um, what about the... Something there, but, uh, when, you know, President Bill Clinton had a, a bypass uh, sometime. Yeah. And CNN interviewed him in his hospital bed and he said, well, I had a bit of blood pressure and I took pills for a while and then I stopped them and I had a bit of cholesterol. <laughs> a bit of this, a bit of that. I wonder why I'm, I've, I've had this sort of event. Yeah, there's no such thing as a bit of a bit of this and a bit of that. There's no such thing as a bit of diabetes. There's no mild diabetes because people have been far too focused just on the glucose. Your glucose level will be high, but it comes with a constellation of metabolic effects that are damaging the vasculature of your body. And as they say, you're old as your vasculature. There's an old saying, you're old as your arteries. Okay, very good saying. And tell me that we've mentioned quite a few um, blood pressure tablets or medication that you you said we're going to take one or two of them to start off with. How are the side effects of these uh, blood pressure tablets? You don't see many people complaining about them. Now, side effects is, a, is, is an issue, and and that's why um, we advocate the combination therapy because can, you tend to use low doses, and they have a synergistic action. Um, so um, we'll often combine the ACE inhibitors with calcium channel blockers, and one of the side effects of the calcium channel blockers is but if you take it with the ACE inhibitor, then you, you, you markedly reduce the swelling of the leg and you can maybe do, use a lower dose of the calcium channel blocker. So generally you can get the side effects um, to the minimum. We, we've got a wide range of medication to use, but there are certainly some people who really struggle with side effects from blood pressure medication. And of course, you know, you start off asymptomatic and then you get symptoms, <laughs> it tends to uh, reduce compliance. But as physician, we must take this seriously. I get so many people come to me who clearly had uncontrolled blood pressure, seen a doctor, and they come and they say that my blood pressure is fine, but I examine them and I find their hearts enlarged, their eyes show damage from hypertension, and nobody's really taken it seriously. So we need a concerted effort from educating the public, and certainly we need a lot of education of physicians take this issue seriously and ensure that because you get much better adherence as a physician if you take the issue seriously. Okay. Um, we mentioned that diabetes and hypertension um, adversely affect mm. the kidneys. Are those the two most common causes of kidney disease? Uh, yes. Uh, in worldwide, those are the two most common causes of kidney disease. In, in South Africa, um, we have a special problem with HIV AIDS, 
and that the HIV virus affects the kidney and is a really important cause of kidney failure in South Africa, particularly if you're not taking antiretrovirals. And some antiretrovirals can cause kidney damage in themselves. Um, so it's a complex issue. So if you're suffering from HIV, it's really important you have your kidney screened for protein in the urine and what we call the creatinine, which is a measure of kidney screening. Okay. So those, that's a vulnerable group. There's three big vulnerable groups are those groups. And of course, if you've got a family history of kidney disease, that's important to take note of. And the older you get, the more chance you get of developing kidney disease. Okay, and uh, might seem like a very simple question, but uh, why are your kidneys so important that you know that you know we know that kidney de- disease is really severely affects people's quality of life and causes uh, other organ dysfunction. Um, besides, obviously, it's a major, a major, major role of uh, filtering our blood, which most or making urine, which most people know what. Else, uh, what other parts of the body are adversely affected with the kidney disease? It has the major function, as you said, is filtration of waste from your body, uh, nitrogenous waste, from, particularly from protein. It also has major function in balancing water, electrolytes. It also has, is very important in bone health. It's also the, the organ that makes what the hormone called erythropoietin, which makes your red blood cells, so people with kidney disease are often very anemic, and that, of course, leads to reduction in quality of life. It also manufactures active vitamin D, and also uh, restores what's called your acid-base balance. So it's got multiple functions, but the important thing is the heart and kidney are very interlinked. So what's good for the kidney is good for the heart. What's good for the heart is good for the kidney. So maintaining good function actually also maintains cardiovascular integrity and health. In fact, most people die of cardiac disease before they reach end-stage kidney disease where they need a dialysis and transplantation. So if somebody's got kidney disease, we must also maintain their blood pressure, their cholesterol, stop them smoking, and all the issues to 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 maintain heart health. Okay, and uh, when we're talking about uh, kidney disease, can you tell us maybe how a person would know whether they've got uh, kidney disease or not? You mentioned screening was a urine test and and a blood test. Are any ways a person would know? Again, you say the common causes of kidney disease like diabetes, hypertension, HIV tend to give no symptoms until you've lost 75% of your kidney function. So it's absolutely uncertain, like high blood pressure, to screen them. You know, if you go to an insurance company and have a, you want life insurance, the one thing they'll absolutely do is put it a simple, what calls the dipsticks in your urine, to check for protein and blood. So that's a simple test. But people with kidney disease can develop significant swelling um, of their legs and around their eyes, they can develop heart failure, they can present with heart failure, and they can present with general feelings of tiredness, lethargy, itching, uh, loss of concentration, a variety of symptoms. I mean, sometimes we see these people being treated uh, for yuppie flu, and meanwhile they have advanced kidney disease. So it's really mandatory 
to, to at the very least, check urine on, on the vast majority of patients who see you opportunistically, uh, particularly if they have hypertension and diabetes and HIV and family history. And at, from time to time, a, a creatinine test needs to be done to check the overall function of the kidney. So it's another really critically important disease. It's increasing in numbers because, you know, diabetes and hypertension are increasing in numbers as a dominant cause. So we've seen an exponential rise. And the cost of, if you develop end-stage kidney, the cost of treating this is absolutely astronomical. Um, if you're lucky to be on medical aid, you'll be covered by medical aid. But if you're in the state sector, probably 90% of people with kidney failure will be sent home to with palliative care and they will die of their kidney failure because the state doesn't have the resources to treat them. So okay. Dilemma all the time. I know. It's, uh, I remember being an intern in the real, renal yeah. unit and uh, decide. You know, well, thank God there was that wasn't up to me to decide, but uh, to see who was going to have dialysis or not. All right, Prof. We're going to take another short ad break and then we'll carry on talking about um, renal function and kidneys when we get back. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Gerson, and we're speaking to Professor Brian Rayner, Emeritus Professor in Nephrology and Hypertension from the University of Cape Town and a Senior Research Fellow. We were busy talking about uh, that horrible decision of whether you can uh, get uh, dialysis or not in uh, government? Is it just too few machines, too many patients? I think it's a host of problems. Um, too few machines, too many patients, uh, not enough expertise um, uh, in the in the sector. I mean, we need a, a, a sort of a plan to deal with this uh, if we're really going to tackle it. Um, and unfortunately, the government hasn't taken this issue, to, to my mind, seriously. I mean, the, despite enormous population growth in the Western Cape, our dialysis facilities have increased minimally. We try and act, uh, put in place a very active transplant program, uh, particularly people can donate their kidneys to affected individuals. Um, and, and so if we have a successful transplant, then they don't need dialysis. So that's our, our program works on that that basis is that it's you know transplant is the, the best way to treat people with kidney failure because it gives them better quality of life and better length of life and it's it's much cheaper than than this very expensive procedure called dialysis which I think is about over two hundred and fifty thousand per patient per year just for the dialysis procedure forget all the very expensive medication they need. To, to treat other aspects of the kidney failure. Okay, so so are you pushing the transplant program? How does it work? How do you? I mean, it must be. It's easy to put patients on the list, well, relatively easy to put patients on the list, but to get uh, donors, uh, especially related living donors, or um, you know, non-cadaveric donors, must be very difficult. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a very important issue. Um, I think first of all we could decide if the person's suitable for transplantation. Not everyone is suitable for for transplantation, so they've got to meet the meet the criteria, generally accepted criteria for for having a transplant. Um, and we encourage all patients to explore uh, potential donation from from relatives or from their spouse. And sometimes, occasionally, it's between 
two good friends, but those have to be carefully vetted. Uh, you don't remember about 15 years ago we had this uh, kidney donor scandal where... Sure, I remember it well. Uh, it has to be vetted by the special committee from the government for unrelated donation. The other way is to improve what's called cadaver donation, and that goes to, the, you know, to try and educate people when people are developing brain death to contact the transplant coordinator to assist with the process. If brain death should occur, then to con to get consent from the relatives to take organs because. You know, it's not just not the kidneys, it's the kidneys, it's the heart, it's the liver, it's the skin, it's the corneas, a whole pancreas. So you can save many lives by, by donating. And I think there needs a huge public awareness campaign on this because our consent rates for cadaver donors when we have people, potentially donors, often the families turn us down for a variety of reasons. And, um, and we need more education to, to promote donation. Sure. It's, uh, I don't think enough people know about it or um, how it works or how many lives that they uh, can save. So you mentioned that it's much cheaper and um, the benefits are much greater than being on dialysis. Um, do you get the normal function of the kidney? Do you get all the vitamin D and erythropoietin as well as all the regulation yeah. in the body with the transplant? Absolutely, that all is restored, and you can come off all those medication. And and uh, most people with successful kidney wouldn't even know they have, you know, have had a kidney transplant. Um, and they return to their work, sports. They even have uh, transplant games, <laughs> where some of our patients participate in the sort of world uh, transplant games. And we've had some few successful athletes. So yes, it's it's really. It's, successful transplant and, and 95% are successful not always uh, um, there are hurdles with the rejection store uh, but um, in, in general terms it's, it's really the way to go for kidney failure if you do that end stage but I think we need to do a lot more uh, for preventing uh, kidney disease uh, we see too many people with high blood pressure under management um, uh, lost their due to high blood pressure and inadequate management or just not knowing they have high blood pressure. You said, uh, just to backtrack a bit, you said earlier that uh, the kidneys will only start presenting, you'll only know that you have kidney dysfunction when about 75% of your kidney function is gone. Is there any way to get back there, that uh, 75% or is it too late? There are, uh, there are a small number of conditions that you can reverse. Um, and, and gain, regain some functions. They tend to be the rarer causes caused by inflammation in the kidneys, which we can give uh, immunosuppression to, to reverse that process. But generally, the, the only thing we can do is tend to halt the process. And there are uh, medications now available that are successful for halting the process. Uh, quite exciting, the, the, these new drugs called sodium glucose transport inhibitors are showing dramatic reductions in kidney failure and diabetes. That will extend to other people with kidney disease. So that is quite exciting development, but it doesn't, you can't get back what you lost because it's scarred tissue and the kidney, unlike the liver, can't regenerate to the same degree. And what do you do for the, you said you can uh, prevent that 25% 
are, can, are people successful in staying with, with living with 25% kidney function for the rest of their lives? Yeah, they can, but there tends to be there will still be a slow progression after that. Once you reach that point, you can't sort of stop it completely. But if you delay it, you can you can get another five ten years of life if you successfully delay it with with ensuring that they avoid what we call nephrotoxic drugs like anti-inflammatories, a lot of painkillers, many drugs that can harm the kidneys. Herbal medications, got to be careful about um, your blood pressure under control. Uh, you must take ACE inhibitors. Uh, maybe these sodium glucose transport inhibitors, even outside diabetes, may be beneficial. Uh, and careful monitoring and, and making sure you have a healthy lifestyle. Those sort of things. So I've been, you know, over the years, been quite successful in halting uh, this in, in patients who take it. And adhering to the medication. What about what about diet? Diet is important, um, and um, so again, the diet is really important. It's, it's exactly the same as for normal uh, cardiovascular health. But when you get to late phase kidney failure, you may need to um, reduce uh, things that contain a lot of potassium, uh, like bananas and grapes, range of food stuff. And also you may have to reduce your protein intake and restrict it to more high-quality protein. You really need to see a specialist dietitian on this issue if you've got advanced kidney failure. Uh, you also need to, very importantly, restrict your sodium because sodium is the, the biggest electrolyte that the kidney excretes, and, and sodium is strongly linked to, to blood pressure and heart failure. Okay, we're going to take our final ad break. And then uh, we can wrap up with some tips and advice. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. We're now final few minutes with talking to Professor Brian Rayner, who, as we said, is an emeritus professor of uh, nephrology and hypertension and a senior research fellow at UCT and we're discussing mainly um, chronic diseases, hypertension, kidney disease, diabetes. We spoke about the effect of uh, COVID on them. Something that I want to just finish off with is Prof, you mentioned that people aren't taking their medicines or just getting repeat scripts and uh, not coming in or not being monitored because they're scared to come in. I think a lot of practice, well, some clinics have been cancelled, but a lot of practices are very quiet because people can't come in. Do you want to maybe leave us with some thoughts about uh, treating your chronic diseases in these trying times? Okay, so in regard to blood pressure, I think if you have this available to get yourself a home blood pressure monitor, uh, one that is validated, uh, you can purchase from the pharmacies, and take home blood pressures and communicate to the doctor telephonically. Uh, if you take, you know, three blood pressures in the morning and three blood pressures in the evening over over three days, uh, and provide and and set up a telephonic consultation with the doctor, then you can monitor your situation and maybe adjust medication. Obviously, you're going to collect your script from the pharmacy, and you don't have a home blood pressure. Maybe ask the nurse practitioner there to, to check your blood pressure and see what's happening. Uh, you should not be stopping your medication, absolutely not. If you're diabetic, you need to be monitoring your um, 
blood sugars with your glucometer and also you can communicate that with your doctor and also go go to your regular HbA1c checks. Uh, that's critically important. So there's a lot you can do at home with chronic diseases. Other chronic diseases, HIV, please continue to take your antiretrovirals, collect your scripts, don't discontinue your therapy. And also, you know, opportunistically, have, if you, to have, be checked for these diseases because there are so many people out there undiagnosed with diabetes and hypertension and HIV. Thank you, uh, Professor Brown Rayner, for joining us. It's been uh, the most uh, informative uh, show that we've uh, had in a while and uh, really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you for giving all these uh, tips and advice uh, to the public. Thank you to our listeners for joining us on 101.95 FM Disco Medical Monday. Have a safe week and a healthy week, and we'll see you again next Monday morning.